Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Cosmo Happy Hour. It's everything you would talk about with your best friends, from sex to celebrity to entertainment. From the editors of Cosmopolitan.com, this is the Cosmo Happy Hour with Elisa Benson. Everyone read the mic-dropping speech that Emily Doe delivered to Brock Turner, the former Stanford Stanford student who sexually assaulted her and got a measly six months of jail time for it. I haven't stopped thinking about it. The internet hasn't stopped thinking about it. I think we all feel, feel really furious about it. And so that's why we're here today. I'm Elisa Benson, host of the Cosmopolitan.com Happy Hour podcast. Um, and I'm joined today by my coworker, Prachi Gupta, senior writer for Cosmopolitan.com. Hi, Prachi. Hey, thanks hey. for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You've been writing about this a lot on the site. Um, also calling in on the phone from Seattle is Jill Filipovich, writer and former Cosmopolitan.com editor, also former lawyer. Hi, Jill. Hi, Elisa. You always have a multi-hyphenate title <laughs> whenever you come on the show. Um, things to list. Exactly, exactly. Um, and for the first time on the Cosmo podcast, um, I'm very pleased to have joining us Sarah Heppola, the author of Blackout, a memoir that came out a year ago about binge drinking and really how little we actually know about blacking out. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Um, and Sarah is joining us today from Texas. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. Well, thank you guys all for... Um, coming on I feel like I kicked this off on a really serious note which of course is a very serious topic but I guess to take things in a different direction you know it's really 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 difficult to get a conviction for rape and for sexual assault and so many as we all know go unreported in the first place so in spite of the uproar that the Stanford letter case has caused it's a victory really and I just wanted to ask you guys first of all whoever wants to jump in first did this feel like a victory to you and I already said that I felt really mad but I'm curious what have been other people's reactions because this is a complicated case for so many reasons Prachi, do you want to start? <laughs> sure. I'm like staring at, at her because I can see her. The yep. silence gets so exactly. deep that you don't want to be the one to break it. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, yeah, you know, to me, it almost felt like we could be on the cusp of a turning point here because um, the level of outrage that we saw, you know, several years ago, an incident like this, I don't think would have created nearly as much outrage as we're seeing now. So I am hopeful that this means that we're starting to take sexual assault seriously. We're starting to say that no, alcohol is not an excuse for this sort of criminal behavior. Um, We're recognizing that the sentence was really lenient. I mean, the fact that a judge could, you know, justify that sentencing shows that 
for a long time this was expected that was okay and i think that the outrage around that decision and the outrage around the justification that brock turner's family had for what he did and why he should receive a lenient sentence suggests that we're no longer going to accept those excuses yeah, I, w- I would. This is Sarah, and I would echo what uh, what Prachi said in in the sense that I think this is the kind of case that wouldn't have even gone to trial at another point. And I think that there was a time when the cultural uh, saying was kind of like, "Well, those two people were drunk." And, you know, when there was in, in the cases of blackout, you know, that was a particularly that's a particularly difficult thing to bring to trial. Emily Bazelon had a piece in the New York Times about four days ago where she talked about that and quoted a Northwestern University law professor saying that, you know, look, this is the kind of, these are the kind of uh, cases we didn't even try, try at a certain time. Um, so it is, it's, it's hard to say that this case represents progress, but, in, but, it, but it does. Um, and the fact that we're having this conversation about um, you know, no, it's not just two drunk people. It's, you know, it's more complicated than that. Um, and that, you know, all of this has made alcohol a very complicated part of the discussion, as I know we'll be talking about right. later. Uh, but it's not as easy as, hey, bad things happen when two people get wasted together. There are levels of awareness we all need. I mean, the fact that I'm two Swedish guys, and, and I, I don't know how much their, their Swedishness had to do with this, but, you know, the two Swedish guys came by and said, that's wrong, what's happening? You know, I need to intervene. That's that's that alone um, shows. I, I feel like a, a, a sense of of um, cultural sh- a cultural shift that's important. So yeah, I think Sarah and Prachi are both right that this is the kind of case that you know a decade ago, or maybe even five years ago, would almost certainly not have been tried. Um, I do think it's reflective of some steps in the right direction. Um, you know, we live in a country where the history of rape law is often then contingent on an alleged victim's sexual history, on her decisions, on what she was wearing, on, you know, who was alleged to have raped her. You know, marital rape just became illegal in all 50 states in the 90s. Um, you know, but, and not to be the downer on, on the progress, um, but, you know, the two Swedish guys that Sarah brought up were really important to this case. They were witnesses. I wonder if this case would have been tried if there hadn't been witnesses. I wonder if the case would have been tried, um, you know, if the woman in the case had known the man who raped her better, if her and Brock Turner had been friends or classmates. Um, you know, if she had been, you know, not passed out in public where somebody could stumble upon her, but in a fraternity where there could have been more plausible deniability. Um, and those kind of cases, I think you still often hear the same defense that Brock Turner's family used, which is that this is an alcohol problem and a promiscuity problem and not a sexual violence problem. Um, I think you have a lot of prosecutors' offices who look at those cases and whether or not they actually agree with that narrative, they understand that is going to be the defense narrative and they're not going to have a chance at winning. Um, and prosecutors, you know, unfortunately kind of live or die by their conviction rate. And so I think you see a lot of those cases where there are not witnesses, where there is alcohol involved, um, still not being brought, even if they are, you know, even if there's a rape hit, even if the victim reports. Um, and I'm hoping this case can, you know, sort of open up our conversations about, you know, what we consider a kind of quote-unquote legitimate rape. 
And something to add to that, I think what Jill hit on is that there are so many specifics of this case um, that if they were a little bit different, we might not have seen any sense of justice. I think another component to that is actually the victim's letter itself was so powerful. And it was, you know, it was an incredible, incredible letter. And I think it really opened a lot of people's eyes. But, you know, how many... We can't expect that victims should can be writing you know letters like this or offering testimonies like this, and we shouldn't expect them to, and they shouldn't have to. Um, so like that, really, the outrage that we feel towards Brock Turner, like that's the level of outrage we should feel for anyone who is a victim of sexual assault like this. Right. Not only in a case like this where it really feels to the points you guys made more articulately than than I would have so cut and dry in some ways like the fact that they were complete strangers you know um the fact that there were witnesses like this was sort of unbelievably i don't want to say helpful to the victim but it was helpful in her getting you know this conviction um i also think that that is one of the most heartbreaking sort of moments of the letter that she wrote when she basically you know, says, like, I can't believe that I was, like, I couldn't believe that they were advising me after this terrible thing had happened to get legal counsel and prove to people that it was a terrible thing that happened. And Jill, I wanted to ask you about that a little bit, because you just wrote a piece for Cosmopolitan.com where you really argue that Brock's Brock Turner's legal team, of course, was just doing their job. And of course, we all know on some level they were just doing their job, but we also feel so, you know, side eye about it in our <laughs> hearts, I think. And, you know, I think we can all agree in a perfect world that everyone deserves the right to a fair trial and that we're all served by legal teams who advocate for their clients, of course, of course, of course. But, you know, when a lawyer asks you questions about what you were wearing and how much you had to drink in your sexual history, you know, doesn't that perpetuate the idea that a woman had it coming? And so what is sort of the solve or the fine line there? Yeah, um, you know, the answer where the fine line is is I don't know. Um, you know, I am a person, as I said, in the Cosmo piece who believes that, you know, defense attorneys sort of do the Lord's work <laughs> most of the time, um, you know, who are absolutely irreplaceable, fundamental, crucial uh, aspects of our criminal justice system, um, you know, and do work that is underappreciated, and especially when they're public defenders, underpaid, um, you know, and are usually, at least for public defenders, they're not defending people like Brock Turner, they're defending people that are typically indigent, many young men of color, um, you know, people who are kind of tossed aside by American society, um, and sort of doing their best to give those people a vigorous defense. Um, that's, you know, that's crucial. That's a gift. When it comes to sexual assault cases, you know, the, uh, the job of a defense lawyer, like you said, is to zealously defend their client. Um, and the job of a prosecutor is to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And when you're talking about a case like the Stanford rape case, where, you know, the guy was caught red-handed, right? So there's no argument that, like, he and the woman were not, that he didn't have sex with her, um, or that he wasn't penetrating her. can't make that argument with your witnesses. So, you know, really all you have is she consented. Um, and if you're going to prove that, 
you know, you do what this lawyer essentially did, which is say, you know, well, she can't remember, but he can. And so therefore, whose testimony do you find more credible? You know, I hear that. And of course, I have a visceral reaction of, God, <laughs> that's what right. a disgusting argument. Um, you know, but I think one thing we have to keep in mind is there was a prosecutor on this case, too, and a very good prosecutor who got a conviction, um, you know, who did her job in proving beyond any measurable doubt um, that Brock Turner did commit the crime of which he was accused. You know, so despite the fact that the sentence here was lower than I think many of us would have liked, um, the prosecutor did her job and did it well. I think the question for the legal community, we now have something called rape shield laws um, across the U.S., which do prevent, in most cases, prosecutors from introducing irrelevant evidence of a rape victim's sexual history. So, you know, this prosecutor, I'm sorry, this defense lawyer, uh, did, as far as I know, did not and could not have asked this victim, you know, how many men have you ever slept with? Um, what he could ask her is, you know, have you ever cheated on your boyfriend? Right. To imply, you know, that maybe this act was something that was habitual and consensual. Um, and I think it's something the legal community really needs to sit down and think about hard. Um, are our evidentiary rules still, you know, when it comes to sexual violence, um, are they serving criminal defendants? Um, are there ways in which we try rape cases differently than we try other crimes in which defense lawyers do rely on misogynist stereotypes, sexist stereotypes? Um, and, how, you know, and if that's true, and I think it is true, then how can we change the rules so that defense, the defendants can still get a vigorous defense and we're not going to undermine that right? Um, but also that victims don't have to be put through, you know, a really sort of repulsive, sexist ringer just for reporting a crime. So, Sarah, you wrote Blackout a year ago, which was a memoir about your own experiences with alcohol and becoming sober. Um, and then earlier this year, one thing that came up when I was preparing for this episode was this piece that you wrote for Texas Monthly about drinking and sexual assault. And you say you couldn't shake a bristling discomfort with the way that excessive drinking complicates the issue of consent. And I have that in my notes and quotes, bristling discomfort, because it felt like such a precise way to sort of raise this issue. And, you know, I think the typical feminist line is that rape is rape and it doesn't matter how much a victim had to drink. So, Sarah, why is it so important to you to sort of challenge that line? Well, for a lot of reasons. You know, I, I started writing this book four years ago. Five? Oh, gosh, I don't even know what, you know, know what day it is. But it was about five years ago. And uh, one of the early experts that I interviewed um, said to me, oh, man, I'm so glad you're writing about blackout because he had to sit on campus tribunals. And he said, you wouldn't believe the number of cases there are, you know, where two people are in a blackout. So even though that wasn't part of my own story, a sexual assault wasn't part of my own drinking story, I knew anecdotally from people that were seeing this that blackout was a huge part of the discussion on campus sexual assault. And one thing I noticed in hearing people talk was, first of all, people didn't know what a blackout was. And I, I sat down and had lunch with one of my friends who's won more national magazine awards than, I mean, I don't even know. She's like the most amazing writer. And she thought that blackouts were passing out. And she'd been reading all these stories about women that were in blackouts. Right. And she was like, are you telling me that in a blackout people can still talk and they don't 
they do things and they interact and they, and they can't remember. And she had no idea what it was. And this is something I've confronted just, I mean, I can't even tell you the number of times. Having written, you know, a memoir about blackout um, and, and also having lived this story, I was a blackout drinker. So I, I didn't understand that, that, that all these people didn't know the difference between blacking out and passing out. But to the other party, the difference is quite market. You know, when somebody's in a blackout, you can't necessarily tell. And when somebody's passed out, they're, they're passed out. We can all tell. Right. And so I think there and were nuances, there were like scientific nuances I thought were really important. I'm sorry. Did, did you have another question? Oh, no, I, I did not mean to cut you off. I was just going to say just to be totally clear with what you're talking about. Obviously, when a person is passed out, they're passed out. But what you really write about in your book and what you really studied, this idea of blackout, which is this short term memory loss of really not waking up the next morning and saying I do not know what happened the night before but that can happen when a person is driving and texting and talking and doing all yeah, sorts of things. absolutely. You can be surprisingly functional in a blackout and the thing that I didn't see, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with my book was to make sure that women knew the risk factors for blackout because I was a very studied drinker. Listen, I knew a lot about drinking. I'd read a lot of stories about drinking. I never saw anybody talking about blackouts. I didn't mm -hmm. know that women were more prone to blackouts than men. I thought it was kind of like a dude thing. Mm -hmm. But no, women can can blackout easier than men because we're smaller and our bodies you know, metabolize alcohol differently and also because we tend to skip meals. So the risk factors for blackout are drinking fast and drinking on an empty stomach. It's basically the definition of pre-gaming, mm -hmm. which is something that's very pervasive on college campuses. And I was seeing in these stories again and again, women that were saying they thought they had been roofied. You know, um, I'm not saying drugs aren't used on college campuses, but I don't think that people understand how easily they can black out. And, you know, we've done this great job of teaching women to cover their drinks. And I don't, I did not think that we had done as good of a job of teaching them what the drinks that they actually buy for themselves and drink on their own can do to them. And one of the things they can do, not always, not everyone blacks out, but 50% of drinkers can. And I was certainly one of them. One of the things they can do is to take away your memory. And, you know, it's a, it's a short-term amnesia, basically. It's alcohol-induced amnesia. And, and one more thing I want to say, and I feel like, sorry, I feel like I've been talking a while, but I, I really heard in this conversation uh, uh, this idea that, you know, uh, you should know when uh, a woman is too drunk to have sex, like that everyone knows when consent uh, is not valid. And, and, you know, I just didn't think that was true at all. When I started asking around to my friends, college students, other people, how drunk is too drunk to consent? Nobody knew the answer to that. I never heard one clear answer, and even in the legal documents, you'll find all sorts of different um, kind of, uh, like sometimes it'll say things like a person who's incapacitated has been incapacitated by drink. And you're like, but what does that mean? Right. And so blackout was this thing that, that was in this gray zone, and I really felt like um, because of a long history of sweeping a lot of real human pain and sexual violence under the carpet, uh, there had been a long history of doing that by saying, you know, she was drunk, he was drunk, it doesn't matter. Because of that, there was an overcorrection to say we cannot talk about alcohol. And I thought, personally, uh, seeing uh, <laughs> the, the, from the people I was talking about to and <laughs> people who were coming to me, um, I just I thought that was a mistake. I think if we blame alcohol for this, that's wrong. But if you cut alcohol out of 
the equation and out of the conversation, I think you miss things too. Um, is it as simple, nothing about this is simple, of course, but is it as simple as saying, though, that when a person is drinking, they can't give consent? I mean, I know it's I not that simple, but why is it more complicated? How, who, well, because, because hookup culture runs on drinking. Right. I mean, because, because come on, because, because drunk sex is what's happening. I mean, that's how sex happens in universities. You've been there and I've been there. And I mean... You know, oh, I've been there. Just, put, just put out girls in sex, and I'm sorry, I just cast a, a shade on your sex life, and I have no idea if that's <laughs> what your experience has been or not. I'm so sorry. Oh no, but, Sarah, uh, I'm right there with I you. Got all, <laughs> I, I got all wound up, and I apologize. But uh, Peggy Ornstein just put out a wonderful book called Girls and Sex, which I think everyone should read. And in there, she she explains, you know, having talked to all these girls from the ages of 15 to 20, the extent to which alcohol is completely entwined in their sex life, and the idea that just drinking you lose the ability to consent it's not it's just not realistic and if somebody disagrees with me please tell me well jill one thing i wanted to i would love for you to jump in here because part of the reason that i feel like anytime we want to make any change especially in the legal system we have to go so ham about it is because lawyers are so literal about everything and you know Sarah used the word overcorrection. You know, part of for so long it was sort of like, oh, well, everyone was drunk. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter what happens when people are drinking. That's what college people do. You know, the overcorrection to that was to say, we can't talk at all about what a victim is drinking. But like Jill, in some ways, isn't that the way the legal system operates? Like it, the legal system seems to me so black and white about things. So it seems part of the reason to need to be so severe or to overcorrect is because you almost have to do that to get lawyers to understand. <laughs> no offense to lawyers. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's <laughs> that's definitely true. Um, you know, and lawyers certainly like uh, not only kind of black letter law as written, but then you know, case law that is as clear as possible. Um, and, you know, when you look at sexual assault statutes in many states, and I haven't looked at every single one, so I can't tell you whether this is most states or not, but I would guess that it is. Um, at least many states do have, you know, a line in their sexual assault statutes that include um, in their definition of, you know, non-consensual sex, um, sex where one person was incapacitated for some reason, you know, drugs, alcohol, disability, um, which, you know, then, of course, leads to the question, well, how do you define incapacitated, right? If somebody is, you know, in the example Sarah was talking about, blacked out, but still functional, still talking and texting and, you know, seems fine, but isn't going to remember any of it the next day, is that incapacitated? And then how can, you know, the other person um, tell that they're, <laughs> they're incapacitated? And how much should we put the burden um, on someone to, you know, to be able to know that? And the truth is, you know, there, there aren't perfect answers there. Um, and we see this in other areas of law as well. You know, if in a, you know, drunken blackout state, you sign a contract to sell your house and then you want to dispute that the next day, um, you know, your state of mind is going to be relevant. Whether the other person, you know, sort of took advantage of that state of mind, how, whether they knew you were incapacitated, should have known you were incapacitated, those are all going to be questions that come up. Um, you know, obviously when it comes to sexual violence, this stuff comes up you know, it's at least sort of anecdotally more often. Um, but it's not as if alcohol only comes into play legally when we're talking about rape. Um, 
you know, so yes, it's going to be imperfect, and these lines are always going to be a little bit blurry. Um, but as it stands, you know, in my opinion, we kind of we we hold um, rape survivors, I think, to kind of a higher bar than we hold victims of other crimes, um, and we put them through much more than than we put victims even of you know many other violent crimes. Um, and that is something that I think, at least in the legal industry, we really need to be thinking about, you know, how we how we fix that. Um, and Jill, you had talked a little bit about that in your recent piece for Cosmopolitan.com as well, that, you know, victims are re-traumatized, rape and sexual assault victims are re-traumatized in a way that just doesn't happen with other crimes. Can you expand on that a little? Sure. So, you know, I don't... Obviously, anytime you're a victim of a violent crime, that can be a traumatizing and horrible experience. Um, but you don't often hear, you know, people who have their cars stolen, um, which is, you know, not a violent crime, but a common um, way of being victimized. You don't hear those people say, you know, going to testifying about where I was when my car was stolen, you know, was such a horrible um, kind of life-shattering, re-victimizing experience. If somebody's mugged. Um, you know, somebody walks up to you on the street at night and punches you in the face and takes your wallet. That's a really traumatic experience. You don't often hear mugging victims saying, going to trial and testifying about what happened was one of the worst experiences of my life, almost as bad as the mugging itself. Um, you do hear that from rape survivors and from sexual assault survivors, and you hear it so often it's kind of almost a cliche, right, that, you know, testifying at trial is sort of like being raped all over again. Um, and I think the reason for that is that when it comes to other crimes, even other violent crimes, um, you know, with perhaps the exception of domestic violence, we don't hear nearly as often about, you know, what did the victim do either to confuse the situation? So, you know, maybe this wasn't really rape. Maybe it was, you know, maybe not consensual, but somewhere in between. And how could, you know, the alleged rapist have even known? Um, you know, or we hear what did she do to kind of bring this upon herself? And, you know, even in 2016, <laughs> that's still um, a trial strategy for a lot of lawyers. And it's, you know, it's horrible for victims. And it's frankly a, a sort of a significant social ill, too, because it's one reason um, that so many rape survivors and sexual assault survivors simply don't report because they don't want to have to go. They know what the process looks like. You know, they've seen Law and Order SVU. Um, they've read stories like the Stanford case. And they, in many cases, quite understandably, um, don't want to put themselves through that. And then what that means for the rest of us is that we continue to have rapists and sexual assailants walking around. So we've talked a little bit about, we've talked a lot about sort of the legal response to this and why that can be so complicated. We've talked about alcohol and sexual assault and why that can be even more complicated. Another thing that I wanted to touch on that's related to all of this is just sexual assault and social media. Um, you know, I think I started by asking you guys if you felt like there was a sense of victory in this. And I think we all sort of felt like so many people read Emily Doe's letter and that really felt important. It's been amazing to really see this spread. Um, everyone has seen this shared a million times over on their Facebook feed. Is there a justice in is there a justice in the court of public opinion? I guess is essentially my question. And you know, one of the reasons that this 
letter that Emily Doe wrote has been so widely shared is because it feels satisfying. It feels like she was really taking down this criminal who the judge basically shrugged off. And I just want to know, does that matter? Is there a justice there? How important is social media when we talk about sexual assault? And I know, Prachi, you're working on some pieces about this, so maybe you want to start. Um, yeah, so I think that, you know, of course it, it matters. To me, it is, there are obviously multiple types of justice. Um, but to me, I think that our legal system is shaped by the culture around it. So to me, if there's social media outcry, that means, that signals that, you know, if that happens enough times, like our culture is changing and a cultural change can lead to legal changes, it can lead to policy changes. Um, and even if the law doesn't change, uh, you'll see companies and universities and institutions starting to change their own policies. Um, so I do think that there is a type of justice that takes place on social media. I don't think it's enough. I don't think, you know, I think oftentimes for victims, it's a last resort when no one else will believe them when they have no other avenues, which is really frustrating. Um, but yes, I do think that ultimately it's a component that will help push to greater change. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I talk about my boobs actually on the podcast all the time because I kind of have big boobs. It's really hard for me to find bras. You guys know this because I always talk about it, but that's why I'm so excited to mention Third Love, who have been a great partner to us here on the Cosmopolitan.com Happy Hour podcast. Um, they swear that they will give you the most comfortable and best-fitting bra of your entire life. Um, their t-shirt bra is super smoothing and visible under every outfit made out of memory foam. I guess so it remembers the shape of your boobs. IDK, but I have one. I'm wearing it right now. I really, really like it. My favorite thing about it on a super detail-y level, besides the fact that it fits really well, is that it doesn't have like one of those dopey bows in the middle, which is surprisingly hard to find a bra without a Or a bead. Bow. Yeah, or a bead. <laughs> exactly, like a teardrop bead. A weird bead. Yeah, what is that? I don't get it. So, <laughs> hate that. Um, but if you guys go to thirdlove.com slash Cosmo, you can find your own non-teardrop bead, non-bow bra. You can try it for 30 days, totally free of charge. If you want to keep it, they will charge your card. If you don't want to keep it, send it back, and they won't charge you. But they really want you to try it out. You can wear it, wash it, keep it for 30 days, fall in love with it. Um, they also have these really great online fit specialists that will help you get sized remotely, because I, I know the idea of buying a bra on the internet might seem a little bit weird, but it's actually a great experience, and I think you guys will really love it. So go to thirdlove.com slash Cosmo to do your free trial offer. Sarah or Jill, do you want to jump in on that at all, just in terms of the justice of social media? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, you know, one thing that Prachi said that is right is that, of course, um, the legal system is shaped by the culture around it, right? I think people often think of the legal system as this, like, untouchable, you know, kind of, you know, six gods sitting up there making decisions according to a law that is written extremely clearly and that is, you know, that there is a clear answer to in every case. Um, and that's, that's not what it is, especially, you know, in criminal cases, you're judged by a jury of your peers and your peers are pulled from your community and they're just as much influenced um, by the culture, you know, as a criminal defendant or, 
as a crime victim. Um, and so, you know, as much as, yes, changing the legal system to be better for rape survivors um, and still fair to criminal defendants is a really crucial project, you know, it is just as crucial, you know, if not more crucial, to shift the cultural landscape in how we talk about these things and how we even understand um, and, and how we understand rape and what we understand sexual violence to include and to mean, um, you know, and how we understand that it's, you know, the way now we understand that, yes, sexual violence can happen to people who aren't virgins. It can happen to women who are married or in relationships with men they know. Um, and this has been a huge feminist cultural project, you know, for several centuries to shift those definitions. And I think the, the power in how connected we are now, whether it's, you know, social media or being able to get your news online or, ha you know, having so much access to so much information um, and to different kinds of people, I think can be an incredibly powerful tool in changing norms around how we talk about these issues. Um, you know, and I hope to kind of get back to something Sarah was touching on earlier, to also introduce a little bit more nuance into this kind of stuff. I think, you know, unfortunately mm. with social media culture also comes sometimes kind of a black and white outrage culture, um, which can smooth, o you know, unintentionally kind of smooth over a lot of the bumps and the kind of little pieces that I think are worth pulling out and discussing, you know, such as how can we talk about the role of drinking without implying or saying that women who drink are somehow bringing sexual violence upon themselves? Um, how can we talk about the role of a criminal defense attorney without saying, well, this guy is scum for asking these questions, or without saying, well, this is just his job? Um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that social media always allows us to kind of pull out those threads. Um, but, you know, I'm hopeful as we all sort of at least get increasingly on the same page about the basics of sexual violence, um, that some of those nuances can be brought a little more to the surface. Yes, I love, uh, I love what, how Jill answered that question, and uh, I just want to piggyback off of what she was saying about, about sort of the need for more nuance and the way that social media is just sort of a black and white machine. And, th and for that reason, I get a little bit more despairing of it, a little bit more skeptical of it. But one of the great things that it does unquestionably is it raises awareness on this topic. I mean, 16 million people and counting have read that statement. That is an astonishing education for many people. Um, I was working on a story that I hope runs in Cosmos soon, which is with talking to men, uh, straight men, about consent and alcohol. And one of the things that I learned in talking to them is that they really don't talk about this with their friends. This is a story that has been dominating <laughs> the media landscape, but it has been mostly a conversation had by women. And I think there's a reason for that. Women needed to lead this conversation. Women needed to be the main voices. But I really think it's time to include men in this conversation, too, and I hope that men are ready to have this conversation with each other. You know, there's been a long time where they had this, they have their own narrow constraints of behavior, you know, and the way that they talk about sex is like, they have all these kind of, they have to sound like it has to be conquest and, you know, I hit that and I did that. And that is so narrow and it's so unhelpful and it's just not even true emotionally to their own experience. You know, I think in talking to these men, every one of them felt like they were hungering for more, you know, nuanced conversations about sex with their own friends. And I think it's time for them to talk more about this. And I think this is the kind of 
kind of lightning rod case that can that can wake them up and say, oh my gosh, we need to be we need to be here too. This is a conversation for everybody. I completely agree Sorry, with. Bud. Oh, I was just going to say I completely agree with everything you're saying about it being a conversation that women needed to have. But I have to say that was one of the things about this: the fact that I did see. You know, this is anecdotal, but just I did see on my own Facebook feed a handful of men sharing certain things and not just by, you know, normally, normally I wouldn't normally the men that I follow on Facebook don't share anything about sexual assault. And Uh so I think I think that is so important for men to talk about. And I think, you know, to to what we've all been talking about, about the insane reach of these millions of people that were touched by this letter. I think that it was such a broad reach that we were finally starting to see men participate in a way that they, it doesn't feel like they have before and in a way that they really need to. But sorry, Jill, did I cut you off? No, no, no. I I was just going to add, I mean, so I'm in Seattle, so excuse the kind of stereotypical liberal introduction but I was listening to NPR (laughs) yesterday and they had this great package on sexual consent and one of the things they kind of got to at the end they were the reporter and I don't remember who it was but she um, she was observing uh, one of these kind of freshman college you know consent education classes that are now pretty standard um, in universities across the US and it was you know with I want to say it was with, with fraternity men and, you know, they were talking about, well, a lot of the questions we've addressed here, okay, you know, one beer is okay, but 10 beers is too many. So what's, you know, what's the number? Like, how, how do I know mm. the line between consent and not consent? Um, and then one of the one-on-one interviews she was doing with a young man, which I found very striking, you know, one thing he said was that he's had these consent trainings, you know, he, he sort of understands that he needs to have consent. But he doesn't know how to ask his partner, what, would you, what do you like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that one thing that he had never had a conversation about, either with other men or in a formal kind of educational setting, um, was pleasure. And Absolutely. not consent mm-hmm. as just like a thing you get in order to be able to go forward. But talking about sex in a way that, you know, is the... <laughs> in my ideal world, how sex would actually function, which is two people having a lot of fun together and doing things they both enjoy. Um, you know, and I worry that that, that kind of education, um, obviously people are not getting that in American high schools, you know, but even in colleges where educators have a little more freedom, um, talking, about cons- talking about consent is obviously crucial, and I'm glad these programs exist. Um, but I would also love to see us moving to a point where we're talking about sex is not something that women have and men get. That's not a conquest. That's not about just, like, make sure you check the box, you know, that so she didn't say no or that she sort of technically said yes. Um, but how do you make it so not only that, you know, women enjoy sex and men enjoy sex and everybody who's there is having fun, but the two people can also communicate with each other about what they want and what they need, um, where young women don't feel like they need to be inebriated in order to not feel bad about sex or in order to be brave enough to have sex. Um, you know, I've had drunk sex too, so I'm not, <laughs> not being critical necessarily of, of alcohol use. Um, you know, but getting to a point where sex is primarily in the realm of mutual pleasure. Um, as opposed to something that's in the realm of something kind of still bad that we're going to do, but it's sort of transactional. 
Um, and that, I think, is what's missing, is you know, a really intensely pleasure-focused conversation that ties in consent, but isn't just about avoiding rape, but is also just about having good, pleasurable, mutually affirming sex. I will say... Yeah, I couldn't... I, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I will say that is the fight that Cosmo is fighting. Good, pleasurable <laughs> sex for all. <laughs> but sorry, go ahead, Sarah. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I, I agree 100%. And you know what it reminds me of, Jill? You know, a lot of this conversation about consent now reminds me of when I was growing up and it was all about pregnancy. Mm. Don't get pregnant. Mm. You can't get pregnant. Don't Or don't lose your virginity, you know? And it was not about pleasure, you know? And, and I did not know until... Mm, bless me, you guys, until my 20s, you know, what an orgasm felt like. Um, and, and I bought a vibrator. And, you know, clearly I was not a Cosmo kid. Sorry. I, I could have learned earlier. There's always um, time. Yeah, no, I'm a Cosmo woman now. Yep. Um, so, you know, this, this idea of introducing pleasure as, as, you know, the way that we talk about sex, why does that feel so radical? But it does, and it's so necessary. And um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that that Peggy Ornstein talks about in this book that I'm going to plug again, Girls and Sex, because I think it's so great, is the way that these young women she spoke to were saying, well, you can't have sex sober because that would make it meaningful. So you have to have sex drinking because that's how you, you have this casual sex. You know, that's, that's, a, depressing, that's a depressing dynamic. Uh, it, it is... It reminds me of my own life, too. I mean, the idea of having sober sex casually is so bizarre. You know, you would have to really know the person and trust the person. Um, so as we are we as a culture willing to say we want to have less hookup sex? I mean, I don't know if that's going to happen. The thing is, again, alcohol really is the fuel of that of that hookup sex. And um but I would love to see whatever kind of sex people want to have. And certainly I'm not against people drinking and having sex because I, I, think, it's, I think it's how it, it's done. It's, but it's this inebriation, this kind of blackout extremism and the, 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 the kind of getting bombed out of your mind, that kind of stuff. And for me, a lot of that stuff came from a discomfort in my own body, you know, not wanting to... Uh, and, and, and wanting to please a guy with these sort of porn star fantasies of like, let me go wild. Well, if you want me to go wild, I'm, you're going to have to give me some drinks. I can't do that on my own. Um, so, so anyway, I think that if we can all get a little bit more real about the, the demands of sexual, of what it takes to be having sex, then you need the alcohol a little bit less. You right. know, I find it's really hard for young people and even grown adults to say what they want in sex. I mean, I, I know I've talked to my friends and they're like, they don't even know how to ask for that. Right, right. You guys, we are about we're about out of time, which is unfortunate because I could talk up. I think this is such an important topic and we're getting to a really good point and I want to keep going, but we have to wrap up. But I also sort of actually love that talking about something that is so serious and difficult to talk about. I sort of love that our conversation evolved to end to this point of like, everyone should have better sex <laughs> like that would really help like if we could find ways to be communicative and make sex about pleasure that would actually solve a lot of problems um so be I, present yeah be yeah present for your partner and yourself you know and that's how you know are you okay with this are you having a good time and it's not just about consent it is about pleasure right. and and mutually finding pleasure right and not needing alcohol to to feel that way 
for sure, for well, sure. Frankly, if both people are, you know, checking in and making sure they're having a good time, I think you're going to have far fewer questions of was there consent or not, was this sexual assault or not. You know, a lot of those kind of quote-unquote gray areas get erased yep. when you make when you look at sex as something that is primarily mutually pleasurable and mutually affirming. For sure. Thank you guys so much. This was a great episode. Um, Everyone pick up Blackout. Sarah, where is the best place for people to buy it? Um, Anywhere books are sold. It just came out in paperback last week, so it should be in those bookstores and Amazon and all that good stuff. Amazing. And where should people follow you? On Twitter? In life. In life. Uh, So on Twitter, (laughs) it's Sarah Heppola, and on Instagram, it's Sarah Heppola Experience. Great. And um, Jill and Prachi, do you guys want to shout out your Twitter handles as well? Sure. Mine is at Prachi Goo. That's P-R-A-C-H-I-G-U. And mine is at Jill Filipovich, um, J-I-L-L-F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C. Thank you guys all so much for joining me today. I couldn't appreciate it enough. And to all of you listening, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Cosmopolitan.com's Happy Hour podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Benson. You can find me everywhere at Elisa Benson. And please subscribe, like, share, do all the things you do with the podcast. And we'll see you next week. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.